Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to walk through a study of this incredible book as the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the churches in Galatia as a defense of the faith, as a reminder of the true gospel, that it is by grace through faith that we're saved. This has been called one of the greatest chapters on liberty and freedom in Christ in the Bible, one of the greatest books on freedom and liberty. It was used to challenge Martin Luther uh, as he was working his way up those steps of that great cathedral in Rome, doing his penance in his church as a monk where he realized that it was all about grace and faith where he stood up and made his way to go back and nail that thesis on that Wittenberg church door to say salvation is by grace through faith. His writings on the book of Galatians were used to challenge John Wesley who came to know Christ through that and, and what started a great revival in that part of the world in that day that really spread to the whole English-speaking world. This book that presents the truth of faith and grace has been used to impact lives and change generations. I love what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, as we study the book of Galatians, we are participating in a tremendous spiritual chain reaction that even today could result in another great revival. Wouldn't it be exciting that if we went through this book, God did something in our hearts like he did in a Martin Luther or a John Wesley or other great heroes of the faith who have discovered the reality of grace. Wouldn't it be great if God would use the study of this book to begin a revival where people came to know Christ, where lives were changed, where church members understood that it's all about grace. Well, that's our prayer as we study this. We're going to look at three verses this morning. As Paul expresses his concern that he's being misunderstood, but also expresses the fact that his call to ministry is a call that came from God and God alone. Look at verse 10 with me. Galatians chapter 1. For I, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to know that I'm here, I'm challenging you, I'm writing this letter, not because man has motivated me. The gospel that I preach is not something that I learned. It's not something that was passed down by tradition, and it's interesting that Paul would say that because remember we said there's a group of people that had infiltrated the church that are called the Judaizers. That's what theologians have called them. Those people said, not only do you need Jesus Christ, but you need something else. You need Jesus plus adherence to the Old Testament Mosaic Law. So Paul comes in, and he says to the churches, I have this gospel that God gave me, 
by revelation. We're going to look at that as Paul tells this story in the rest of the chapter and in the chapter after that. Paul says, God gave this to me. It is, a, it is salvation by grace through faith. And those people that are telling you you need to add to the mosaic, uh, need to add to grace, the mosaic law, he said they're getting that. It's the tradition of men. So as Paul states these questions, the obvious answer is, no, I'm not a man pleaser. No, I didn't get this truth by listening to the traditions of men. I have this truth. It comes to me from God to deliver to you. And they were challenging him. They were saying that his gospel was a watered-down gospel. They were saying, Paul isn't really demanding everything of Christians that we need to. They said, we really need to tell Christians, not only do you receive Jesus, but you have to keep the law. That's the true gospel, they said. That's the real gospel for real strong Christians, they said. Paul is challenged by that. And he wants to say, I want to correct that. That's not where I stand. I stand on grace. So his concerns are expressed. And then he tells them about his calling, that Jesus Christ has called him to deliver this. So he's defending his position. He's defending his ministry. He's defending his message. And he's defending his calling. Let's look at some points of application through this passage for us today, all right? We're, we're not the Apostle Paul, we're not the church of Galatia, but we still struggle with the same things that he was addressing in this chapter. Number one, conversion to Christ means giving up personal ambitions. Conversion to Christ means giving up personal ambitions. We highlighted a little, or didn't highlight, but we, we spent a little bit of time on verse 10 last week, but I want to go back and highlight it today. He says for Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Can I say it another way? When I accept Christ as personal Savior, when I trust Him as my Savior, I set aside my own personal ambition. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you don't still have desires and motivations and goals and things that you do in your life. And I'm not saying that you're not supposed to have any ambition at all. But you're supposed to say, whatever ambitions I have, I set aside for what God wants out of my life. Can you say that? Can you say, Lord, now that I know you, now that I'm, I'm a believer, now that I'm a follower of Christ, your agenda takes precedence over my agenda. Paul says it. I am now a bond servant of Christ. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. When I got saved, I gave up my rights. I said, it's no longer about me. When we baptize someone, in this church, and we'll have a baptism at the end of the service day, when we place that person in the water, it's a picture of when we trusted Christ, we died to self. Did you know that? Did you know that when you received Jesus Christ as Savior, you said, I give my life away, I give it to Christ, and I die. The old me was put to death when I received Christ. Now, somebody says, do you believe in the resurrection? I know a lot of believers that do. (laughs) They believe in resurrecting the old man. (laughs) They believe in getting the old self out and putting I on the throne, putting, putting themselves in the center. And I, how do I know that? I've lived that, I've experienced it, and I've talked to folks who say, oh yeah, I did receive Jesus, but now God wants me to be happy. I've had people tell me I'm leaving a marriage because God wants me to be happy. I've had people tell me God understands my sin. That's the old man just coming right up out of the grave. Paul says, I gave up my personal ambition. When I received Christ, I became a bond servant. I love what Luther said when he was called in account, uh, called to give an account before the church leaders in the Roman Catholic Church, and he stood before them to defend his position where he was calling for grace and faith and not the traditions of men. 
He said this before the council. He said, I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed. And in conscience, I'm taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything. On this, I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. You know what Luther was saying? He's saying, I know what the word of God says, and that's where I'm taking my stand. He was willing to give up his life if need be, for the gospel. That's what Paul says. Willing to give up his life. Conversion to Christ means giving up our personal ambitions. If you're willing to do that, have you done that? Let's make it present tense. Are you doing that? Not what I think, not what I want, but what God wants. I read a story recently about a bank in in Southern California, and there had been a bank robbery, and and they were not able to catch the person, so the bank, a year or so later, hired a a private investigator and told him, please find this person who stole this money. We're not going to press charges, we just want the money back. So they hired this, this private investigator, they sent him on the trail of whoever took the money, and it led him to Mexico, and the private investigator got into Mexico and realized he'd found what he thought was the, the, the person he thought was the man who stole the money, and he put him under arrest, but he had to get an interpreter. So he brought the interpreter. He said, I want you to ask the man, where did you hide the money? Tell him, we're not going to hurt him. We're not going to prosecute him. We just want to know where the money is. So the interpreter asked him where the money is. And the suspect says, the money is in a coffee can. It's under the floorboard at a hotel, room number 101. And he told him where it was. So the investigator turns to the interpreter and says, what did he say? What did he say? He said, he's not going to tell you. (laughs) He said, ask him again. In in fact, he pulls out his revolver and puts it to the man's head and says, I mean business. Tell me where the money is or I'm going to take your life. So the interpreter goes through it again. The man says again, I told you, it's in a coffee can. It's under the floorboard. It's in this room in the hotel. So the the man says to the interpreter again, what did he say? He said, he's prepared to die with this secret. See, the interpreter wanted what was best for him. How many of us in the Christian life do that? How many of us say one thing, yet if we really knew the truth, it would be different? Personal ambition is to be set aside. Number two, second truth from this passage. The gospel is not a product which we present to satisfy customers. The gospel is not a product that we present to satisfy customers. Remember, we've said the gospel is the fact, the truth, that Jesus came, God in the flesh, that he died, crucified on a cross, that he rose again, conquered death. He came, he died, was buried, he rose again. That's the gospel. And then the gospel goes on to say that if you'll accept that by faith, you can know eternal life. That's the truth. That's the gospel, the heart of the gospel. Paul is trying to say to those Judaizers, to those theologians who are questioning his motives and his message, I have not watered down the gospel. I have not said to people, all you have to do is trust Jesus and you can live any way you want. Paul has other places where he addresses that truth. He's trying to let them know the gospel is truth. You guys are adding to it. Look at that second truth there. It is not a product that we present to satisfy the customers. That's what they said Paul was doing. They said, Paul, uh, the gospel started in Jerusalem, and you've taken it out there to all those Gentiles, and in order for the Gentiles to like the gospel, you've kind of watered it down. 
And you've presented it in such a way where the Gentile Christ, where the Gentiles uh, and the, the pagans would like it. You forgot to tell them about the law. You forgot to tell them about Moses. So Paul, you've watered it down. And Paul wants to say to them, this whole passage, I'm not a man pleaser. This gospel I have is not something I made up in verse 11. It's something God revealed to me in verse 12. It's not a product that I can tweak so that my audience will take it. But folks, it's real popular today to do what Paul was being accused of doing. He wasn't guilty of it, but it's real popular for people to do that today. Where they say the gospel is all about feel good. It's all about God loves everybody. It's all about you can live any way you want. It doesn't matter. Some call it the feel good gospel. So many illustrations in our culture. Just one. And this is not an attack on Oprah Winfrey, okay? But this is addressing a falsehood of her gospel. She was raised in the Baptist church, by the way. She heard the preachers preach that God is a jealous God. And she couldn't handle that. She said, oh, come on, let's get over it. God can't be a jealous God. She figured jealousy meant he was insecure. So she moved on to find her own God. By the way, she says that God is not hung up on what you believe about him. He doesn't care what you call him or it. She calls it the force. She says, I choose to call the force God. Folks, that's pretty watered down, isn't it? But I tell you what, if you don't know the truth, you start hearing that stuff, and it sounds good. Let's help people. Let's love one another. Let's reach our full capacity of what God has created us to be. And it is permeating our culture, a watered-down version of the gospel that God doesn't care what you call him. God doesn't care what you call him. I read to our Wednesday night Bible study group where God, in one place where God says, I believe Isaiah, this is my name, that's who I am. I'm God. Don't water it down. We were talking in my connection class this morning about McDonald's. Make y'all hungry now, all right? How, how kids know where McDonald's is and they know all about it because they know about the Happy Meal. Someone said the reason Ronald McDonald is smiling is because they make so much money on that Happy Meal. <laughs> Take your kids and try to give them some money and say, look, we're not going to buy a Happy Meal. I'll buy you the toy. They don't want the toy. They want the Happy Meal experience with the toy. Because the Happy Meal is happiness. That's what they're selling. Have you, have you noticed that? It's all about what feels good. Now, they've marketed it very well. The bad news is that that box, when you open it up and eat it or play with the toy, eventually happiness is gone. That's what our world is doing out there. That's what our world is marketing their own distortions, their own flavor of what the truth is. And they may be in a church, and they may sound good. They may even open their Bible. They may even talk about Jesus and faith in God and occasionally sin and repentance, occasionally. But when they tell you you can live any way you want, when they tell you it doesn't make any difference how you get to heaven, something's wrong. Paul says the gospel is not something we make watered down in order to please our audience. It's not a product that we sell. It's truth. And we just present the truth. Third, third principle or truth from this passage. And this would be one of my favorites from this whole book. Our relationship with Christ hinges on the finished work of Christ. 
My relationship with Jesus Christ hinges on the finished work of Christ. Remember we said last week that there are two areas of theology and the study of Christ. There's the person and the work. The person of Christ, the work of Christ. The person of Christ is who he is. God in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. Not half and half. Fully God, fully man. That's the person of Christ. Then we talk about the work of Christ. That's what Christ did on the cross. Listen, you cannot separate who he is and what he did. They go together. And you cannot have a relationship with him unless those two truths are preeminent in that relationship. Can I say that another way? Jesus died for your sins. He is to be Lord of your life. You cannot claim a relationship with him without repenting of your sin and trusting in his lordship. It has to be that way. The finished work of Christ means he did everything necessary to deal with our sin. The Gospels, it's recorded that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he uttered those words, it is finished. Some translators translate that, it is completed. Others translate it this way, paid in full. Some people read that it is finished and they think Jesus is saying his life is finished. It's over. He's about to die. Well, yes, that was true at that moment. But when he stated, when he uttered, it is finished, you know what he was saying? I've accomplished the work the Father has sent me to do. I have paid the price for your sins on the cross. Done. Completed. Paid in full. You read the book of Hebrews and it says over and over again, Jesus Christ came and died and became the sacrifice for sins once for all all no one else can atone for your sins no one else can do anything to make it possible for you to go to heaven Jesus took care of it all and what Paul is saying here is it's all about what God has done this whole book of Galatians emphasizes the truth Paul alludes to in these verses that it is the finished work of Christ that makes it possible for us to go to heaven I read this week about the Chicago Bears coach he tells all his new rookies when he gets them in the room and, and three-quarters of them will never make it through, maybe even more than that, he's, this is what he says to his rookies. He says, you make us put you on the team. As a coach, they say to the players, make us put you on the team. So excel in your performance and all these tryouts that we have no other choice but to acknowledge that you're the one that's done the work to get on the team. Make us put you on the team. That sounds pretty good if you're a football player. But that mindset coming into our theology isn't real effective because we want to perform to prove to the coach that we're good enough to get in. Did you hear that? There's this tendency to want to perform so that the coach will say, yeah, I'm going to put you in the game. It doesn't work in Christianity because Paul says it's not about, remember we said last week, it's not all about what I can do to get to heaven. It's all about what Christ has done so that you can get there. We said religion is due, Christianity, it's done. It's not, oh coach, I'm going to do everything I can do so I can get into heaven. It's not, coach, now that I'm a believer, I'm going to do everything I do so that you'll be so happy with me that I'll really get into heaven and be sure of it. See, all of that is works. It's more like this, coach, I don't measure up. The only way I'm getting in is by grace. That's not going to work in a pro football team, is it? <laughs> Out the door right away. That's the way God ordained it to be in the Christian life. The person, the work of Christ, it 
is the finished work of Christ. This happens quite frequently in our family. It's happened here in Rockport a lot over these years. Kelly and I will go into a restaurant and we'll order and, and we'll be sitting there and get ready to, to leave after we finished our meal and we'll, we wait and wait and wait and so we'll find our waitress and we'll say, we are ready for our check. Because you know how you wait and you're ready to go and they don't bring it? it? Happens all the time. It happened just a couple of weeks ago one Sunday afternoon. And she said, the last time this happened, the waitress said, it's taken care of. What do you mean it's taken care of? We always look around. Who's here? <laughs> it's happened to us a couple of times that we've never seen anybody in the restaurant we know. No one in our church, nobody that we know in the community personally. And we look around and say, who did that? The waitress just said, it's taken care of. What a blessing. I, got my, I have my wallet. Well, I don't have it with me, but I have a wallet. And I don't carry a lot of cash with me, but I do carry my debit card. So I can pay. But what a neat Neat thing to happen when somebody says, it's taken care of. Yeah, but wait, I've, I've got, I'm ready, I'm prepared, I can handle it. No, you can't, because it's been taken care of. That's what God says. No matter what you want to do to attain, to achieve, to strive, to prove that you're good enough, God says, don't worry about it. It's taken care of. It is finished on the cross. Next principle. What are we on, number four? Only God can reveal himself and change the hearts of men. Only God can reveal himself and change men's hearts. Look at verse 12 with me again. Paul is saying this over and over. For neither, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, that word revelation is the same word for the book of Revelation. It's that unveiling it's something that was once a mystery has now been made known. And only God can reveal. Paul is saying that. Man can't make this stuff up. Peter said it this way. No interpretation, no word comes by men, but it comes by the Spirit of God. As God spoke and worked through men. That's how the Word of God is recorded. Paul says it's a revelation from God. Now, here's, here's the principle there. Only God can reveal truth. You can't. I can't. As eloquent as I can be, and my or I, or am I or not, am I sometimes eloquent, right? That was, a, that was a joke too. As eloquent as I can be or not be, it is not these words and my speech that convinces you. Paul prayed in 1 Corinthians that his speech would not be with enticing words of, words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that the faith of these people would not rest in Him, but in God alone. I pray that almost every week. God, that's my prayer. That whatever I say wouldn't be eloquent. <laughs> he answers that one a lot. That the faith of these people wouldn't rest in me, but rest in the truth of the Word of God. Do you know, do you know that God is at work in hearts today? I had someone sitting in my office last week with tears in her eyes. God spoke to her during the worship service. Had nothing to do with what I preached on. Nothing to do with it. But God was dealing with her. That's a good thing. I could try to orchestrate and tailor every sermon to meet different needs of people, but that, that's not the way it works. God works in hearts. I know that by experience. When God's stirring, when God's working, when God's revealing truth, it's all about what God's doing. 
And Paul is trying to say here, his gospel came from God. That's where the truth comes. That's how it's revealed. Only God can change the hearts of men. The application for me is very, very important. I just try to present the word and let God do the rest. John MacArthur says he's like a waiter. He just tries to get it to the table without spilling too much of it, without dropping any of it. And God does the rest. I've listened to godly men, evangelists, who have shared that they will go to one city and preach a sermon. Their heart right with God, convinced that God wanted them to share that, and nothing happens. And then go to another church, either in that same city or nearby city, preach the same word the same way, with the same heart, and God just breaks out and, and revival occurs. And he says, what's the difference? He said, it's a sovereign move of God. It's not about how eloquent we can be. It's about how powerful God is. And Paul says, I want you to know it's not about men's stuff. It's about what God reveals to us. Can I, can I tell you that there's a word of encouragement for you also, even though you aren't preachers like I am? When you share Christ with someone, whether it's you telling your story, or you going through the gospel very clearly, or reading a track with someone, or taking them through the Roman road, it's not dependent on how eloquent you are. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? It's dependent on the Spirit of God working in their lives and in their hearts to bring them to the conviction of sin. I've never in my life, in over 20 years of ministry, been able to convince someone that they need Jesus. Sounds pretty sad, doesn't it? That's true. I've never been able to convince anyone, but God does it. One of the truths that I think is so incredible in this passage is that Paul is saying, God's the one who reveals. God's the one who causes the light bulb to come on. God's the one. Take comfort in that. Take encouragement from that. We'll say more about that as we go through this chapter. And then number five. I mentioned Paul was concerned about them misunderstanding his motives, but he's concerned about them misunderstanding his call to ministry. Our call to ministry must come from God. Our call to ministry must come from God. Now, don't check out here and say, oh, wow, that's not for me. That's for preachers and missionaries. I don't have to listen to this one, so I can just tune out. Somebody already tuned me out, but that's all right. Our call to ministry as believers has to come from God. Paul says it clearly. This is not something that, God, that man did. I'm not a, a man pleaser. I'm a bondservant of Christ. He says it came as a revelation from Christ. Paul is saying my calling comes from God. I'm responding to the call of God. Now the next chapter or so, Paul tells his story. And his story is my ambition was to persecute Christians. My ambition was to climb in the ranks of Judaism. My ambition was to impress all my peers with how good I could be as a Jew. But God stopped me. Stopped him in his tracks on the road, Damascus Road, and called out to him and he said, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul acknowledged it was the Lord and God ultimately changed his name to Paul. Paul tells his story to say this. I had my desires of my life, and God called me to something different. 
Now, he may call you to a full-time vocational ministry. He may do that. If he's calling you, you will not be happy doing anything else. Can I say that again? If God is calling you to full-time vocational ministry, you will not be happy doing anything else. But it may be that God's calling you to another ministry. Maybe God's calling you to minister to someone in your neighborhood, in your family, in your church, in your sphere of friends, in your circle of influence. People struggle. How do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know if God's speaking? When you are prompted to go to someone who needs Christ, you know God's speaking. When someone comes to you and says, I'm curious about your faith, you know God's speaking. When someone comes to you and they say, I've got a burden, will you pray for me? When people begin to share that they're struggling, that they're seeking spiritual things, the Holy Spirit of God is at work in their life, and God has brought you into their life to be the connection point. It's a divine appointment. Do you see that? Do you see how we wander around sometimes saying, oh God, tell me what to do? And God's bringing people into our life with needs, with struggles, with problems. It might be a financial need. It might be a physical need. It might be an emotional problem. God's bringing them into our life. And and that is God saying to us, here you go. I'm calling you. Will you respond? My concern is that most of us respond like Moses did. He said, here am I. Send Aaron. Oh, there's a need there. Let's call the church benevolence committee and have them take care of that. Oh, there's a problem here. Let's call the pastor and let him pray with them. But God brought you into that person's life. At that moment, that's God speaking to you, saying, will you respond in obedience? That's why you need to be ready to give an answer, Peter said, to the hope that is within you. You don't have to be eloquent. We already said that, didn't we? You don't have to be a theologian. You just have to be there and listen and share. God's the one who calls. Paul said, God's the one who changed my life. God's the one who placed me there. And my experience has been God loves to get us out of our comfort zone. That may be an indicator right there that God's moving you to get involved in the ministry. I met with some folks in our church recently who said, Pastor, God's calling us to move, to go into ministry. And my first thought in the flesh is, man, I hate to lose this family. (laughs) But the very next thought is, isn't it great that God calls and that people will respond? Wouldn't it be great if every Sunday when we give an invitation for people to come to Christ, and we see people come to Christ at the same time we'd have people step up and say God's called me away to go to respond to the call of God one of my heroes in the faith is Adrian Rogers he went home to be with the Lord a few years ago but I watched him when I was a brand new preacher actually a seminary student when our Southern Baptist Convention was going through controversy And there was a group in our convention that said, the Bible contains God's word. Let's don't get all hung up on labels and have to say it's inerrant and it is God's word. Let's just say that that it contains the word of God. 
And there was a group of conservative theologians in our convention that said, no, the Bible says it's inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It's without error. And Adrian Rogers was in that conservative camp. And our convention was going the way of what other mainline denominations have done. Going away from the Word of God, saying we don't have to believe that every word in here is truth. The convention was going that way. And Adrian stepped up and became one of those, those solid men who stood and said, no, we have to stand on the Word of God. Well, they put together a peace committee at one of the conventions. This is in the early 80s. They put together a peace committee and they said, let's, let's let these folks figure it out because we want to save our denomination because it's fallen apart. So they got a bunch of guys that were liberal theologically and some guys that were what like to be called moderates theologically and some guys that were conservatives theologically and some guys that were fundamental theologically and they put them all together and they met a couple of times a year for a couple of years said y'all work it out and come back and tell our convention what we're supposed to do about this so they started to work at a compromise because you got a group over here and a group over there and one lawyer who was privy to what the discussions were came to Adrian Rogers and he was one of the moderates, one of the liberals. And he said, Adrian, if you don't compromise, we're never going to get together. And I'll never forget what Adrian said. I went and looked it up again so I could read it, the text to you. When they said, Adrian, you need to compromise so we can get together. He said this, I'm willing to compromise about many things, but not the word of God. So far as getting together is concerned, we don't have to get together. The Southern Baptist Convention, as it is, does not have to survive. I don't have to be the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. I don't have to be loved. I don't even have to live. I will not compromise the Word of God. Man, I get chill bumps just reading that again. Here's a man that said, it doesn't matter what others think about me. It doesn't matter what people say. This is all that matters. And I, like Paul, am willing to say, that's more important than my life. That's more important than my goals, than my ambitions. Folks, what a privilege we have to share we have been called by God to take his word to those who need him. Can we stand on that? Are you available? That's the next question. Will you go if he says go? Will you stand if he says stand? Let's pray together.